welcome to UX Soup, a podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Chris Schreiner, and I'm joined today by my special guest co-host, Di O'Neill. Hi there! Hello! Di is the uh, director within our UX innovation practice and last appeared on UX Soup with Lisa back in episode 54 on Smart Surfaces. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. So Di, you've come on the show to help talk about today's topic, which is brain-computer interfaces. This is something that not too long ago was the stuff of sci-fi, something that was so far out in the future that um, we wouldn't necessarily give it much of a thought, but now um, it's been much more in the news and thanks to advancements in artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, and more precise surgical procedures. Uh, we're hearing a lot more of it, particularly in the, the medical community, um, with some others <clears throat> making uh, some rather <clears throat> bold claims for future consumer usage. So let's talk a bit about brain-computer interfaces. Di, you've recently published a report looking at it from a technical perspective. So how about if you talk a bit about what BCI actually is and some of the different types of BCI? So it is a fascinating area, and you're right. It is the uh, the things of sci-fi that have come to um, be used commercially by the everyday user. Um, so fundamentally, BCIs, so brain-computer interfaces, are systems that allow direct communication between the central nervous system and an external device. Um, the idea is that brain activity is converted by learning algorithms to replace, restore, enhance, supplement, or improve natural CNS output. So by changing the ongoing interactions between the CNS and ex external or internal environment. BCIs are uh, also known as BMIs, so brain-machine interfaces, um, enable new ways to interact with computers and enhance how people can communicate with each other. There are two types of brain-machine interfaces. Um, they're either invasive or non-invasive. Um, invasive uh, BCIs do require surgical um, implantation. Um, and can only be used by professional institutions. Um, the invasive ones are physically implanted either onto the surface of the brain under the, the skull um, or in specific areas of the brain. So, for example, for the movement areas or the areas um, directly involved with speech. Non-invasive BCI are the ones that comprise the headsets. So these are the ones that can be used by consumers in their own homes. They look um, almost like a crown or the form factors could be a headset, uh, much like the one that you're wearing, Chris, today uh, over the ears, over the head. Um, and the electrodes are placed on the scalp and it continually measures the user's electroencephalogram. I would imagine that obviously the, the invasive <laughs> types of, of BCI would be much more precise, much more exact, easier to to train because you know exactly what spots you're hitting, whereas these types of 
uh, headset or or domes <laughs> hats that you might wear uh, because they're only getting surface readings. Would it be accurate to say that they're probably not as as yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the invasive ones really are all about, um, I would say, rehabilitating patients. Um, Mm -hmm. So patients that have um, sadly suffered paralysis or disease um, after an accident, you know, the invasive um, electrodes are all about restoring speech and mobility. It's really about um, helping a person move for themselves after they've had an accident or have suffered some form of paralysis whereas when you're um, using the consumer headsets uh, which are literally just placed on a person's head they are very much for simpler functions of mind control um, or enhancing performance so mind control might be changing a tv channel giving a room light um, providing a more immersive experience during gaming to um, I think some developers wear certain headsets to enable them to concentrate better Um, so the headset can pick up when they're not concentrating as much as they should be Mm -hmm. and it will automatically cut off uh, emails it will just help the person focus on the work in hand and it will start playing certain music for example just to really help that person concentrate on the task that they're supposed to be doing at that time. I want to get to some of those use cases in a bit, but let's talk about the the main driver really for BCI, and that's what you're talking about uh, with regards to rehabilitation. So to kind of explain a little bit, this wouldn't be in place of things. This would be more things to kind of aid traditional rehabilitation techniques, right? It's not like we're going to stick implants in your brain and suddenly, you know, you're able to to just go out and and do these things that you couldn't do before. It's just more of a, well, we still have to go through the months and months of speech rehab, months and months of uh, physical rehab after a stroke, say, to get these movements back. And brain-machine interfaces might help with that or make that quicker. Would that be? Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I would say it's complementary. And I would also say that the technology, while it's, um, there in principle I don't think it's you know it's going to be mainstream for a long time um, expense is one thing mm-hmm. um, I think they're still very much researching what they can do and what's possible um, I think you know there are a couple of companies that are looking at invasive uh, BCIs um, but they need to get to human trials and I, and we're just not there at the moment so I think with all of these things it's fantastic that we're aiming so high um, on what's possible but it's it's still going to be a while coming and it will be complementary so it's you right. know it's enabling and it's helping people to have a better life after paralysis um or you know due to a dis, uh, a disorder such as alzheimer's or strokes you know when those functions are taken away from people because of something of something that's happened in their in their brain um it's being able to help those people rehabilitate back into the life that they once had pre-stroke or um pre-onset of dementia i mean obviously dementia happens over a longer period of time um but i truly believe these things could be used to help these these patients have a better quality of life yeah one of the issues that we see especially when we're talking about trying to bring this over to the consumer space but in the rehab space 
and you know these aren't plug and play things it's not like there's a a brain machine interface that's you know you just plug it in and or stick the electrodes in the brain and suddenly hey they know exactly what to do there's a lot of training of the algorithm because everybody's brain is very differently wired that the algorithm has to learn what it is that um the the patient is trying to do yeah in order to help and that training like i've i've seen uh, medical papers that look at this kind of training where it's several months you know they come in twice a week for three months or so in order to get the kind of training that the algorithm needs to help with the speech or the movement or whatever it is that they're trying to whatever function they're trying to get back Absolutely. I think they're not quick fixes um, and any kind of BCI does need calibration, even the, the simple movements. Um, you Once you get your headset, you still have to calibrate the system to be able to read the brain waves that you're you're giving out to be able to to move things around a screen or to turn the lights on and off or, um, you know, to make even in gaming um to look at something and for that object to move or shoot or right. you know for the more immersive experience you still need to calibrate your brain with the, the the bci that you're using so let's let's stop right there and kind of take a step back when we before we get caught up in any hype about bringing this to consumers to think about all right so i'm gonna spend thousands of dollars or however much this would cost on a device that I have to stick in on my head, either, you know, some large heads, headphones or some kind of crown device or something that will probably uh, help me stand out in a crowd and train it for X number of days and weeks so that I can turn my lights off in my living room. Um, so I think the... Um... <laughs> Yes, yes and no. The So the, the more commercially available headsets, for example, I think the calibration doesn't take days. It's, you know, it's uh, probably a number of hours, um, if not less, because the movements are simple. Anything more, I think you would be in the realms of taking, you know, days and weeks or months to do. But the idea is of the commercially available headsets, which I would also add, there are some which are, you know, hundreds of dollars, like a couple of hundred dollars, sort of eight hundred dollars. They are available now to buy off the shelf. Um, so we're not talking thousands of dollars. They are accessible pieces of equipment. And those ones really are to more to enhance um, performance or um, ensure that people's attention isn't lost uh, by looking at their phone or looking at emails so they can really focus on the task in hand and those sorts of systems are designed to be calibrated fairly quickly so they are more plug-in and play. Yeah so that kind of brings a, a, a bit of a distinction so there to me I kind of see it as there are two different well three different classes of uh, brain computer interfaces so you have one that's for medical and rehab purposes. Then if we're talking about consumers, there would be one to help you control things, to shut the lights on and off in your room or or you know, control a player in a video game. And then another category would be for monitoring. So monitoring your attention and then doing something externally that's not you know directly into your brain but you know playing music or something like that to kind of help you focus so kind of a, a you know more of a, a brain machine for monitoring 
your yeah. brain state no, I, kind of I, guide yeah. you. I agree entirely. I think there's you you can make the distinction between very much the consumer um, orientated devices and then the the research institutions and then you know and then the surgical research institutions as well. There's I think you're right. There are very distinct use cases for for what a is you are you can do in your own home, mm-hmm. um, and b what is then possible given the technology that you've bought off the shelf or you're using in a research institution. One of the other interesting ones I saw wasn't a device that you stuck on your head. It was one that was actually connected to your wrist. And that was yeah. for specifically for gaming, for first-person shooter things. It, it, it recorded the neurons as you were wanting to, say, shoot. Um, it, it would record or decode the pattern um, and then follow your action and then try and predict when it was you, you were going to shoot so that you could do it faster and I saw some work where they kind of proved this use case out with their device and people were able to shoot in a video game several, I forget exactly how many milliseconds, but it was, <laughs> it, it wasn't that much, but yeah. I would But it's an advantage. It's an advantage. I imagine if esports or or that, if, if that became a much a bigger business than it even is now, that, you know, something like that, that's trying to decode neural patterns to help give you that extra couple of millisecond edge or something if they don't outlaw that type of device in competitions. But yeah, no, I agree. Definitely. So I, I don't think that we can talk about this topic without bringing up Elon Musk and Neuralink and some of the demos that they've had and some of the claims uh, that that Neuralink has has made along the way uh i guess what what are what are your thoughts on that um i think that some of the things that elon musk is doing could be seen as kind of out of this world um yeah <laughs> a little bit yes um especially with his use of pigs and monkeys yeah um, i think the the idea is there in principle absolutely and um if we can get to a place where we could surgically implant electrodes which would provide um movement or communication to someone that has um suffered a devastating paralysis then i think that can only be a good thing however it's the amount of money it would cost to get to that point right Uh, it becomes exclusive, doesn't it? It, it does. Um, it does. And what, I, I guess... think it's pretty amazing what you can do these days. Um, and the whole idea between BCI of, you know, the whole concept of BCIs um, that you can use, you know, brain control. I mean, we've got gesture, we've got voice, you know, after a while, what's left? Yeah. The, brain is... <laughs> <laughs> the, the brain is this thing, I think, that people just don't understand and they still struggle to understand. And oh, I think absolutely. One of the, the best use cases for BCI is is to understand humans um, and human intent. I think having small children, for example, it is very difficult sometimes to explain why we behave in a certain way or why we do certain actions in certain environments. And I think until you start breaking it down to a to for a, a, a small child or a four year old to understand why you can't say to someone, "Oh, you're really fat in a supermarket," it really starts <laughs> making you think. 
fundamentally, how do you break down life and how do you understand the way that the brain works? Um, as, as, as someone that went, that, that got my graduate degree in trying to figure out how the brain works, I find all of this very fascinating. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and on a philosophical level too. Absolutely. Um, so as long as it's used carefully and for the right purposes, um, because obviously there's the whole ethical Yes. Uh, privacy security background that if you start um invading a person's thoughts um <laughs> or or you know, writing where, writing thoughts where do, where does it stop and and that's my whole that's my whole issue with Neuralink and elon i mean first i mean elon being elon and making claims that he's not going to back up and certainly not within any time frame that he says i mean he's got such a long track history of overstating claims <clears throat> yeah and then bringing a, a a much poorer thing to market and even those those demos that you mentioned about the pig and the monkey those are things someone that has at least a little bit of knowledge in in neuroscience those are things that have been done for decades like he's not the first to implant things in a pig or a monkey and he's not the first yeah. to have a monkey perform some trick using brain computer interfaces so none of that is is revolutionary. I think the thing that is revolutionary, what they're doing, is the, the wireless aspect of it, which I guess, I don't know if that's more evolutionary than revolutionary. That's topic of argument, whatever. But the being able to do what he's done so far is outside of the wireless part is not new. <laughs> and yeah, I agree entirely. And so that's disappointing. And then kind of Elon's, uh, <laughs> the, the claims that he wants to make about things like hive minds or uh, a more of a, a real connection between humans and machines, I think that's just, uh, well, one, just scary and uh, not something I want to be anywhere near. <laughs> Very true. I think, yeah, and... I think it's the point at which you start invading people's thoughts is the point at which it becomes really scary because, you know, you've literally got now nowhere to hide. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, we went and talked to consumers about what use cases they'd like to see for brain machine interfaces and what their concerns were. And of course, that is one of their concerns is how easily would my thoughts be hacked or how, yeah. how would my thoughts be read and what that would be used for. Now, again, that's so so far out in the future from where we are now where we're planting thousands of things in a monkey's head so that he can play pong um that something <laughs> is, it, it, it's not there but the other thing that was interesting about consumer feedback on it is that they were really concerned about what the impact these things might have in terms of uh, radiation or cancer yeah, would something like this cause cancer because of all the constant monitoring or or even if it's not yeah. constant the daily monitoring or for an hour or two what impact this would have on their long-term health and really no confidence in a company like Neuralink to be able to safely bring something like that to market very true yeah um as much of an entrepreneur as Elon Musk is, I think sometimes he does, uh, people do lack confidence in quite, you know, what he's saying or what he's doing. And um, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure I would want 
one of his implants in my brain. <laughs> uh, moving my arms for me or helping with my speech. No, you're right. I think any technology that you immerse yourself in on a daily basis is going to be ultimately detrimental. I'm not sure it would go as far as perhaps having like, you know, an x-ray every day. But mm -hmm. um, yes, you're right. I think it's something that should be considered. Definitely. Well, it's time for condensed soup. So today for condensed soup, I, the question die for you will be, would you ever use a brain machine interface? And if so, for what? And if not, why? Um, I think I would be intrigued to try the uh, the commercial like crowns that are available uh, just to see uh, if I could control a cursor on my computer or the lights <laughs> in my house. Um, but I think, uh, like you say, what, what other consumers have said about kind of invasion of privacy or or any further than that, I think the technology would have to move on significantly before I'd be prepared to start sticking things into my brain uh, to, yeah. to, uh, to achieve anything more. Uh, so definitely from an intrigue point of view, I think it's it would be quite interesting to do, uh, but on a very superficial level. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm with you on that. I might try it out at a CES one year. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I would hope to never need to use one. If it was, it would purely be for rehab medical purposes. I think my concern with any consumer brain machine interface is just a complete lack of transparency um, mm -hmm. and lack yeah. of you know, peer-reviewed research or, you know, it needs to be the, I, I guess, all, all the science behind it needs to be transparent. It needs to be peer-reviewed by scientists. It needs to be something that, uh, you know, you have to really feel comfortable doing. And I don't, that isn't uh, typically what uh, consumer electronic companies do. They have to hold things proprietary. They have to keep information to themselves internally. Yeah. And, and so for that, I wouldn't want that anywhere near my brain. Yeah, no, agreed. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Di, for joining us today. Hope we can have you back soon. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, if you have any questions about brain machine interfaces or like to send us any questions you may have, you can always email us at uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, has links to our research on brain-machine interfaces. And there you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UX Soup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. <laughs>